Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akish Rafi. Today is February 5, 2021, and I'm speaking with Elise K. Burton, who is professor at the University of Toronto. She's author of Genetic Crossroads, The Middle East and the Science of Human Heredity. Thank you for joining us, Elise. Thank you so much for including me in this series. Elise, you've been studying heredity and genetics in the Middle East. When talking about the Middle East, can we use the terms race and race science in the same way we use the terms here in North America, or are there important differences in how the terms are used? This is a great question to start with, because for a long time, Middle East historians have been sort of bogged down in these debates about the meaning of terms like race or equivalent ideas of race science within Middle Eastern languages like Arabic and Persian and Turkish. Um, And I think because of these debates over terminology, we've actually been prevented from recognizing how many really important historical parallels there are between the Middle East and Europe and North America when it comes to what we might call the prehistory of race science and the later adoption of scientific thinking about race within the Middle East. So I'll focus on a few different aspects of what we might think of as this prehistory of racial thinking. And firstly, I want to highlight um, that the primary religions in the Middle East um, are Abrahamic, uh, and therefore they have a shared sort of genealogy of thinking about the origins of humankind, specifically Uh, the sons of Noah, this idea that all humans alive today are the descendants of Noah and his family. This is an idea that was shared uh, not only among Muslim thinkers in the Middle East, but also, of course, many of uh, the scientists that we're familiar with from Europe that shaped uh, a lot of racial thinking. Um, Furthermore, There's a shared uh, intellectual genealogy that stems from ancient Greek thinking about human variation and what causes people in different parts of the world to look different from another. Now, a lot of those texts uh, were written by Greek scholars like Hippocrates and Galen, um, and there was this debate in classical antiquity about uh, the role of climate and geography Basically, there was a strong sensibility that environment uh, was the causative agent that created these things that we now recognize as racialized differences. And from the ancient Greeks onward, these were perceived not only to be differences in the way that people looked, but also, of course, in their moral behavior and their psychological traits and even what was called their levels of civilization. And these debates continued in the Middle East, uh, well into the Islamic period, uh, where these ancient Greek texts were translated into Syriac and into Arabic. And so it's important that I say that these are debates 
because it's important to understand that for all of these different scholarly figures participating um, in these early ideas about racial differences, there is in fact no clear consensus on the boundaries of climate zones that are believed to shape um, the, the formation of different, you know, sort of racial groups. Um, there's definitely no consensus on what any fixed number of races um, or human varieties might be. So the racial categories that form um, in the Islamic Middle East are highly flexible, just as they are, in fact, um, in pre-modern Europe, right? So we see that these um, ancient uh, Greek debates, uh, they eventually get translated from Arabic into Latin, right? And this becomes familiar um, as sort of a pre-race science uh, that emerges among Enlightenment thinkers in Europe. Likewise there, they're fixated on the potential role of the environment in shaping human difference. Um, but they're unable to come up with any consensus either about these issues or, in fact, about what the real meaning of the term race should be. So if we're considering what the terminological differences uh, for the word race might be between uh, Europe and the Middle East, we also have to look at terminological differences even within Enlightenment Europe, right? And the final historical convergence that I'd like to bring attention to is um, histories of slavery and the slave trade, which are highly relevant for the development of racial ideas, uh, both in the Middle East and what we might call the North Atlantic, right? So there's a lot of really important new work being done by historians of the Middle East and North Africa on slavery in these regions. And until now, there's been a lot of emphasis on the fact that patterns of enslavement in the Middle East look pretty different from the patterns that we see in Europe and in the Americas. So most importantly, uh, in the Middle East and North Africa, we have many fewer examples of chattel slavery or plantation slavery. It's just not nearly as common. It is not the prominent form of slavery as it was in the Americas. Um, instead, you primarily see examples of domestic slavery and also military slavery. And the sources of enslaved people that were brought um, to the Middle East and North Africa to serve in these um, these conditions um, did not only come from sub-Saharan Africa, uh, they also came from the Balkans, from the Caucasus region, from Central Asia. So there wasn't as close a correlation between uh, blackness and the status of enslavement as we see in the Americas. Nevertheless, uh, when we look at the modern Middle East, we see very much uh, similar patterns of racialized anti-blackness that have emerged and which are indeed closely correlated to the recognition um, that while not all enslaved people uh, in the Middle East and North Africa in history were necessarily from sub-Saharan Africa um, or appeared to be black, black people who live in the Middle East today 
um, are sometimes referred to uh, by words that mean slave um, or descendant of slaves. So we do see um, a similar pattern um, of anti-blackness, racialized anti-blackness that has emerged in the Middle East today. So once we're looking from the perspective of all these long durée shared historical ways of thinking and other um, convergences in social history, I think these more narrow debates about terminology just end up distracting us from being able to recognize how closely connected the histories of race science in the Middle East and Europe and North America really are. So how did the science of race arise in the Middle East? So if we consider the science of race in Europe to be emerging at the end of the 18th and the early 19th century, it arises in the Middle East essentially within the t same time frame. And in my opinion, the reason for that is because the formation of race science as we know it in Europe is very much um, the product of colonial encounters all around the world, including in the Middle East. Um, so I perceive the race science that we're familiar with um, being consolidated in Europe in the early 19th century, which we recognize in terms of increasingly quantitative ways of measuring human physical differences. For example, craniometry, uh, the measurements of skulls, and anthropometry, measurements of other parts of the human body. Um, these are all becoming um, sort of standardized and part of routine race science practice in the early 19th century, just at the same time that European imperialism in the Middle East and North Africa is really ramping up. Uh, for example, the French invasion of Algeria um, and, of course, the interventions in Egypt uh, by the French and later by the British, all beginning in the early 19th century and continuing throughout the century. These colonial encounters weren't only motivated um, by gaining sort of political and economic advantages in the region. They were also guided substantially by these European romantic fantasies of um, the Orient and especially of the biblical Holy Land uh, in the Levant. So by the middle of the 19th century, in addition um, to all kinds of scientific research which is going on in French Algeria and in Egypt, um, there's a lot of archaeological excavations taking place in those areas as well as in the region of Ottoman Palestine. And uh, in those excavations, there's a lot of interest being paid to all the human remains that are being found. And of course, the new techniques used by race scientists like craniometry enable the comparison of these human remains to living native people in the Middle East and North Africa. So a lot of the race science we see taking place in the 19th century Middle East is fixated on trying to determine whether people living in the Middle East today are related um, to these ancient pre-Islamic, you know, glorious civilizations of the past, including biblical civilization. And it's not only Europeans who take an interest in this, right? There's many different groups of people in the Middle East who want to claim descent from um, these civilizational genealogies and really stake their own identities on these questions of ancestry. 
Um, so a lot of the race science at this time was very much performed um, in relation to these archaeological excavations and through the techniques of craniometry and anthropometry. I also want to highlight that in the 19th century, uh, many um, Middle Eastern um, intellectuals, uh, so people from the Ottoman Empire and the Qajar Empire of Persia, these were people who had been sent abroad to study in Europe, to learn um, medicine, to learn archaeology, to learn engineering and other sciences. And these intellectuals, um, you know, they learned race science, um, and they perceived very clearly um, that it was a powerful, a politically powerful form of science. And they were definitely willing to accept um, the premises of a lot of race science as being to some degree biologically sound, uh, you know, or scientifically sensible. But this didn't mean that they passively accepted European scientists' hierarchies of race. Um, so, for example, we know very well, right, that European and white North American scientists all stationed uh, white races, um, including white subraces, as being at the top of a racial hierarchy of human difference. Well, a lot of Middle Eastern race scientists came to be deeply embroiled in debates over whether various Middle Eastern peoples counted as white, um, where they should fit into this overarching hierarchy of race. Um, and again, I'm emphasizing the word debates here. Um, they weren't simply accepting um, what was published by Europeans about Middle Eastern peoples like Turks and Arabs. They were trying to come up with their own uh, narratives of racial identity through the means of race science. So once we get to the 20th century, and we're looking at the aftermath of the First World War with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the collapse of the Qajar Empire, and the formation of all these new nation states in the Middle East, we see that uh, race science, many aspects of race science, are actually strongly embedded in the new nationalist political ideologies of these different Middle Eastern states. And furthermore, it even finds its way into education systems, for example, in the Turkish Republic, in the French mandates of Lebanon and Syria. Um, we see examples uh, where craniometry and race science are being taught in high schools and universities. And this lasts well into the middle of the 20th century and even up to the present. I found this really interesting case uh, from the American University of Beirut uh, in the 1950s, where an undergraduate student of anthropology uh, became very popular in his dorm and in his classroom uh, for promising to find out what people's ethnic origins or their racial classification was by going around and measuring their heads for fun, um, much in the way that we see people today uh, taking a lot of enjoyment um, in, in um, these direct-to-consumer genetic ancestry tests, which are supposed to tell you what your ethnic background is. So these scientific ideas about race 
are not only um, informing what high-level politicians are doing when they engage, for example, in territorial disputes um, or in the repression of ethnic and religious minorities, they're also becoming embedded in how the average citizen of a Middle Eastern country understands their own uh, racial identity and how they belong to a specific nation state. And what has been the relationship between race science in North America and Europe and race science in the Middle East? When we look at the 20th century Middle Eastern scientists who are involved in the various fields that relate to race, um, this includes physicians, this includes anthropologists, and of course later population geneticists, Overall, you can see that all of these scientists are deeply embedded in transnational networks, uh, very much focusing on European and North American networks. So even these scientists who are themselves committed nationalists, um, they all work in very close collaboration with scientists in, in what we might call the global north. Um, and my book traces in detail a lot of these networks and how they were formed and how they functioned. Um, we might be a little bit surprised by this um, in the context of sort of the decolonizing Middle East and um, the role of nationalism informing these scientific communities that are very concerned about racial identity. And we do see some counterpoints um, to, to my assessment. For example, there was the Turkish anthropologist Shevket Aziz Kansu, who in 1931 made this impassioned plea um, to his fellow Turkish scientists by saying that the anthropology that they were doing in Turkey, they should stop comparing themselves to uh, the results of Western publications. He said very clearly, first, we need to conduct our own research uh, and come up with our own results um, instead of constantly comparing ourselves to whatever Western scientists have found out about Turks and other people in the Middle East. Yeah, at the same time that he's making uh, this argument, um, Shevket Aziz Gonsu uh, is very closely connected to a Swiss anthropologist named Eugène Pitard. Pitard is a very interesting figure um, because he's one European anthropologist who goes against um, what was then a popular perception that Turkish people were not a white race, that they were a branch of a mongoloid, Asiatic, yellow race. Um, and this was a perception uh, that Turkish nationalists were deeply offended by, right? A lot of Turkish anthropological research um, in the early 20th century was dedicated to refuting this idea and to do this, they relied not only on anthropometric methods, but also new technologies like the one that's now referred to mostly as seroanthropology, which is the study of the ABO blood groups uh, under the assumption that different frequencies of these blood groups um, in different populations correlates to a racial classification. It's a methodology that bridges uh, anthropometry-based racial science with uh, the new forms of population genetics that we see emerging in the 1950s, and that eventually becomes the anthropological genetics that we're familiar with today. So these Turkish nationalist anthropologists um, are using, you know, tried and true race science methods like anthropology 
in addition to new and slightly controversial methods like seroanthropology to try to advance their argument about Turkish whiteness, essentially, um, and the Turkish racial origins as being shared with European peoples. And Eugène Pital in Switzerland is hugely influential in advancing these arguments by Turkish nationalist anthropologists to European audiences. So what's going on in the Middle East is always having both a domestic and an international audience. It's always occurring in the context of academic um, and research collaborations between European and Middle Eastern scientists. So it doesn't make sense really to think of a Middle East race science as ever happening um, in isolation from the science going on in other parts of the world. Uh, you have to understand um, race science and its later sort of manifestations in human genetics as all being part of a, a global pattern of interaction. And part of what this means is that European and North American scientists who became very famous um, for their ideas and hypotheses about the evolution um, of certain uh, genes for disease, like sickle cell disease, for example, or favism, um, or who became famous for uh, a lot of different ideas about how humans evolved um, and the reconstruction of ancient human migrations. So many of those scientists worked uh, with scientists from the Middle Eastern region. And so in the process of formulating those famous hypotheses, they ended up absorbing um, a lot of nationalist ideas from the region about the origins of certain ethnic groups and religious groups and how they were related to one another. And so a major theme in my book is showing how um, nationalist conflicts and territorial disputes that seem um, to be relevant, you know, only to the Middle East, actually have become embedded into the international science of human genetics. And if we look at the history you recounted for us now and the work you've done in your book, what kind of perspective does this history offer on contemporary issues in the Middle East? I think this history definitely has a lot of implications for understanding the Middle East today. Firstly, there's been this strong perception that the Middle East is not a very scientifically productive place, that essentially it's a consumer of Western technologies and uh, that most of the science is done there is actually done by Western scientists who are visiting the region. Uh, but actually what I've shown um, through my book is how much what we think of as Western science is being produced through mechanisms of collaboration. So all, like I said, all of these scientists that are talking about uh, race, all of these Middle Eastern geneticists, they were all deeply embedded in transnational networks. So this means that Middle Eastern science isn't something that's limited uh, only to the region. Scientific productivity in the Middle East is something that has affected 
all of international science, especially when it comes to human genetics. And secondly, of course, uh, I made all these references to nationalist conflicts, territorial disputes, ideas of ethnic difference. So the legacies of race science are still being deeply felt today in the Middle East. And of course, it continues to shape uh, new forms of human genetic research in the region. So when geneticists in the Middle East are trying to study the differences uh, between Middle Eastern ethnic groups at the level of genetics, um, it's not something with strictly academic implications. It always has, you know, sometimes very dark and scary implications um, for who has the right to citizenship in specific countries. Um, it always has political implications regarding territorial disputes. So based on genetics and the reconstruction of past human migrations, arguments are advanced um, for which state or which people has the right to a given spot of land. And finally, it of course has certain kinds of medical implications. So early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there were Jordanian scientists who were arguing um, that Arabs had a certain level of genetic immunity to COVID-19 uh, because they had um, a higher number of sort of inherited lung cell uh, receptors. Anyway, there was some sort of genetic trait that Arabs had um, that other ethnic groups in the Middle East didn't have, which was supposedly shielding them from high rates of infection. And to make this claim, the Jordanian scientists were actually looking at data from the state of Israel and contrasting it to the occupied West Bank um, and claiming that because the COVID-19 infection numbers in the West Bank were lower, this had something to do with the fact that most of the inhabitants there are Arab. Um, so you see that these are, you know, highly contentious claims um, that were sort of disproved later on in the pandemic as COVID-19 rates gradually began to accelerate in many of the Arab countries. Regardless, that's just one example of how uh, th this history um, illuminates the ongoing issues and implications related to the idea that there are genetic differences between national, racial, or ethnic groups within the Middle East. Thank you, Elise, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thanks again for having me. Elise Burton's book is Genetic Crossroads, The Middle East and the Science of Human Heredity, out just about now from Stanford University Press. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video forums, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.